0: Before I get to today's show, I wanted to welcome all the new listeners who have started following the Taste podcast for the past couple of months. If you're new or even a long-time listener and enjoy these conversations with folks like Jonathan Kung, Jenny Rosenstratch, Alton Brown, Andy Barigani, and Jamie Oliver, to name a few, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you are listening to the show. These reviews mean the world to us, and you know what? I'm going to read your review on the show on a future episode. You know what to do here. And I thank you for listening.
1: I was doing a Zoom call with some friends during COVID. And one of them was visiting their parents. And they were like, oh, mom and dad, come say hi to my friends. Oh, hello, what do you do? What do you do? And I said, I write about chefs. And the mom goes, oh, I hear those are dangerous characters. I've met so many great people in the industry. All this stuff, obviously, is real. I'm not debating it. And it's rampant. But it's not
0: universal. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Writer, podcaster, and cookbook collaborator Andrew Friedman has a unique vantage in talking about chefs and food writing as a profession. He's worked with some of the most interesting voices in the restaurant world, including Daniel Ballou, Alfred Batali, Michelle Bernstein, and David Waltuck. In this episode, we talk to Andrew about collaborating versus full authorship and about his most recent work, Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, a sweeping account of the chef world in the 1970s and 1980s in America. Andrew also talks about the chef takedown piece. Are they merited? We have an open conversation about the responsibility of writers, chefs, and the many judgment calls being made by journalists and editors covering the industry. Also on the show, we speak with Clarkson Potter editorial assistant, Bianca Cruz, to hear about what it's like to prepare for a culinary school exam. Man, I love this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Andrew Friedman. Matt Rodbard. It's, you know, it's nice to see you. Welcome to the Taste Podcast.
1: Thank you very much. I've been waiting for my, uh, I've been waiting
0: to make my Taste debut. But I want to talk to you about the cookbook because I think you have a special seat having collaborated with so many chefs, but I'd like to know what is so special about a cookbook as a book, as a document, or as a work of journalism?
1: Specifically the area of chef cookbooks, I mean, for me, For the chefs themselves, and I I don't know that I've ever had a chef actually say this to me. I don't know if they're aware of it, but I've come to believe that the psychology of it is that chefs want something to to document that they were here. You know, I I wrote a book about the chefs of the 70s and 80s called Mm -hmm. Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, and... You know, a lot of those restaurants have been gone for decades, yeah. and even a lot of food writers that you and I both know, you're you 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 kind of know a lot of these things, and I don't say this critically, but even a lot of food writers don't know some of the names that I was writing about, and these were people who, like twenty years ago, they were you know the David Changs and the yeah. whoever of their time, you know, and. Restaurants are very funny that way. When they're gone, they're gone. The building becomes something else. It might not even still be a restaurant. Uh, The food. I remember David Kinch, the chef of Manresa and other restaurants in the Los Gatos area south of San Francisco, said to me once that when he did the Manresa book, by the time the book came out, for him, it was dated. You know, it was like the restaurant had progressed in its style and what it was doing a little bit, probably not in a way that... Even diners might notice unless they were very astute about food. But David noticed, right? It's a real
0: time stamp. And I think I mean, yeah. David Kinch, you know, quilted giraffe, right? He worked there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He has yeah. like legendary uh, yeah. restaurant. But but he, you're so right. You're onto something where it is a document. It's like a fossil, right? It's like an, a fossil in amber, a lot of times, these restaurant yeah, books, well like put. Battersby, yeah. is a great example. Like that, that's long gone. It's been three other things on Court Street or Smith Street, sorry, since then. So, um, when you're writing these books with these chefs, are you feeling that there's a bit of a a pressure or a bit of a um, intention to create a legacy with the writing, with the recipe development, or are you just kind of doing the snapshot of the zeitgeist at the moment?
1: Well, the the thing I just shared I didn't come to until very late in my cookbook writing time, just you know, ruminating on it one day. But uh, it may have even been for a piece I wrote for Taste that that thing I wrote about the chef cookbooks of the '90s yeah. for you guys. But um, I've always taken the role of collaborator, and for people who don't know, when I say collaborator, I'm writing invoice. You know, it is I do get a credit, but the mm-hmm. book, other than my name being there, I'm kind of the invisible man, right? And Uh, I take that responsibility very, uh, almost sacredly. That sounds precious, but its I don't mean it in a precious way. It's such an important thing in a chef's career. And someone in publishing, yourself, Matt, you'll appreciate this. If you're doing their first book especially, this, how well that book performs, sells, is going to determine whether they'll ever get to do another book. So I take that hugely seriously. I try very hard to pick projects, you know, where – I, I don't feel like I could ever lapse into phoning it in, you know, or yeah. just kind of like taking a transcript and cleaning it up. Like I really try to write as these people. And know? that's
0: so challenging. I have to – I give credit to any collaborator when they join the Taste Podcast because it is a different skill set than just writing um, as a writer, which is my more of my style with my books. But I have to give you credit. Um, it's really hard to, to nail that voice, especially if you don't know the chef intimately, right? Like sometimes you're working on a book – that we'll talk about with some Chicago chefs. You don't know them that well. How are you getting voice when you don't know a chef that well?
1: Uh, Just spending a lot of time with them. Yeah. Listening very intensely. Uh, Sure. Not using a transcriber, you know. Uh, Totally. Recording and listening back myself and kind of marinating in in the audio. Yeah. And you start to pick up on certain things. I mean, I always say uh, the challenge of collaborating is to try – to make up on the page what's lost in a transcript, what's what's lost by not being able to hear tone of voice, intonation, mm-hmm. all of that stuff, right? Because when you're a reader, you just have the words on the page. So if you have kind of a timid personality, you may have to uh, play, you know, you may have to play it up a little in the yeah. writing. You may have to amp it up a little. If you have a real outsized personality you may have to pull it back a little because the words on their own may look a little ridiculous mm-hmm. if you're if, if, you know the kind of charm of the delivery of these big personalities yeah. is not
0: available. Let's talk about Alfred Portali, Gotham. It was the first book that you worked on with a chef. And I, I just want to get, how did you actually get into cookbook writing? You, you, you had a career well before cookbooks, but how did you get into this world back then?
1: In terms of how I got into it, I mean, I was trying to be a screenwriter. And I had a day job that I'm dating myself that I found in the New York Times. Yeah,
0: like the Uh, real print edition, not the website. No,
1: for something that was uh, described itself as a lifestyle PR firm. And it turned out they were the number one at the time restaurant PR firm in New York City. It hasn't been around for years. It was a guy named David Kratz. It was called Kratz and Company. A lot of people who have their own agencies now Mm -hmm. started there. Um, like there's a gentleman named Philip Baltz who has an agency that does a lot of restaurants. Phil Mm -hmm. and I, you know, were on the same team back in the day. Uh, And there's other people who were there. And uh, I, to be honest, I'd always loved going to restaurants. I wouldn't have ever, and I still don't really call myself a foodie, (laughs) um, but I loved going to restaurants. Mm -hmm. Uh, The shallow part of me loved being known at restaurants, uh, mm-hmm. You know, the first time or two that ever happened to me, places, just neighborhood joints, but I'd love that feeling when I walked in for the first time and they remembered me. Like, mm. I love that. That's a shallow thing from me. No,
0: it's honest. It's like but part of that hospitality. I love it. On, testi- on steroids. Right? I just love it.
1: Yeah. And, um, Anyway, one of my clients was Alfred Portali, who, uh, ah. who now has Portali Restaurant, yeah. uh, but at the time, and for 29 years, was the chef of Gotham Barn Grill, and I may be wrong about 29 years, but for about 30 years was mm-hmm. the chef of Gotham Barn Grill, uh, very important chef. We had a real rapport, as I did with a lot of my clients. I mean, I, st- I became friends with a lot of my chef clients, and these are people who've gone on. Marcus Samuelson, at age 24, was my client.
0: At Aquavit? At
1: Aquavit. Nice. When he got the job, they hired us. Uh, Rocco Dispirito at Union Pacific, where he was the toast of the town (laughs) for a couple of years, was my client. Uh, People like that. I mean, it was a really fun, exciting time to be in the thick of the industry here. And, you know, Alfred and I had a great rapport. And if he ever needed a difficult letter written or a speech written or something like that, Mm -hmm. he would ask me to do it. And I... At the time, as I say, I was trying to be a screenwriter, and uh, I loved that challenge of, like, to me, it was just like writing dialogue for a character, but, you know, over pages and pages. And it's a longer story than this, but I ended up writing the Gotham Bar and Girl cookbook. That's actually the first thing I ever got paid to write.
0: That's amazing. Of so, any kind. No, I, There was no article. So you didn't sell any screenplays, you're saying?
1: I came so painfully close.
0: What a tough industry. So painfully close. Do you still write screenplays? Are you still in that I, world? Funny
1: enough— uh, a guy named Randall Palmer, who is one of the four sons of the chef Charlie Palmer. Uh, he and I are writing, working on a scripted hour-long television drama project, uh, which has been backburnered for a few weeks while I finish my book. Yeah. But we've gone through several drafts of a pilot script. No, we're, we're very, we're very motivated and serious about it. And I haven't written anything in that format, a teleplay or screenplay, in more than 15 years and I'm loving
0: it. It's great to like step away and then come back to it and, and I wish you the best. Thank you. Sell that thing. I want to hear a little bit more about some of your your longer form journalism, some of the books that weren't cookbooks but actually more reported books because that seems to be what you've kind of fallen into more recently and one in particular um, is the Store book Knives at Dawn where you covered this um, legendary cooking competition in Lyon, France and the training of it. So I'd like to get into this because I think the Bucostor is, is really cool as a as a subject for a book. So explain a little bit about what this was and what your book actually discovered about the the, the participants. Uh, Knives at Tongue was a book I did not want to write.
1: <laughs> um, my agent had another client who was going to maybe do something about the Boku's door.
0: Yeah.
1: And for people who don't know, you kind of just uh shorthanded it. That's a competition that's been around Uh, Since 1987, it happens every other year, as you said, in Lyon, France. And 24 teams come from around the world, and they compete. And it's very – they've done certain things in the last few times to modernize it a little. But when I covered it, it was still straight-up traditional, a Mm -hmm. fish platter and a meat platter that the team was a chef and a commis or an assistant. And they had five hours about to – prepare these things, and they would, if you've ever seen footage of the Culinary Olympics, it's very similar, just yeah. very ornate, as, as much as you could show off in five hours on a, two platters, you did, The right? toques
0: are like six feet tall, too. It's all very old-fashioned. They're, wearing. they're wearing these crazy it's
1: in, hats. It's in Lyon, which, <laughs> you know, is, uh, well, it's the birthplace and childhood home of Daniel Balloud, but yeah. it's also, you know, along with Paris, probably the most important restaurant yeah. city or town in, in, in France. And it's steeped in history. And anyway, my agent had a client who was going to do a book about it and decided – or was interested in doing a book and decided not to. And then my agent said to me, you should approach – this was the year that Danielle Balloud and Thomas Keller and Jerome Bocuse, who's Paul Bocuse's son, Mm -hmm. who – runs the Chefs de France restaurant down at Epcot Center. They took over the U.S. effort that year.
0: And they were like the coaches, right, Uh or, they or mentors? Were, the coach
1: was actually a guy named Roland Hennin who was oh. Keller's mentor. But they were kind of yeah. the the like the triumvirate at the top of the Bocuse d'Or USA, which is the foundation. It's now called Mentor, M-E-N-T apostrophe O-R. And um, so there was a lot of media coverage because those people were getting involved. And I ended up reaching out to Danielle. At some point, it clicked into me because I also write about tennis or did. I haven't Mm -hmm. in a couple of years. And I saw an opportunity to kind of write about cooking as sport, you know. And when that kind of clicked in, I got a little interested and I ended up – Danielle was a big champion of the project. Thomas took a little longer, as is his nature, to Mm – uh, warm up to the idea of having a journalist like in his in you know in his mists all the mm-hmm. all the time um, uh, he didn't know me at all at that point um, and that was i mean that was a life-changing experience for me because a i was i was as you say i was embedded mm-hmm. uh, i was doing very long extensive interviews with some of the people involved multiple ones i mean you mentioned tim hollingsworth i mean yeah. he would practice for like 10 hours and then after he cleaned up the R and D kitchen, he and I would go. We, this was all in, in Yountville in yeah. the Napa Valley. We would go to. We had our standard dinner. We would go to
0: Bouchon. And, oh man, tough, tough assignment. And
1: we would have. Um, <laughs> well, I picked up those checks, so it was not yeah. all fun and no, games. I know. But um, we had, you know, we would eat, <laughs> have our own apps, and then we would both have a steak free. You know, and and we'd have a bottle of wine and have a recorder on the table and he would just download to me, you know, and it was that kind of, that was the first time I'd done interviewing like that. And I think it's when I kind of started to figure out that I was more about writing about these people than I was – interested in like doing my own cookbook or something like that.
0: Yeah, you really tapped into an element of the restaurant industry that was well ahead of its time when you're writing these books, which were long-form narratives about the chef world, which of course Anthony Bourdain wrote about in his memoir, um, Kitchen Confidential, but also um was less common, right? I mean, you were you, there wasn't like long-form journalism about chefs. I mean, think of Bill Buford Heat is another book that embedded with chefs, but you're you were ahead of your time, I would say, with this kind of uh type of writing, right?
1: I mean, that's That's a very flattering thought. Maybe a little. I mean, I I still think I'm the only person who goes around, and people always laugh if I say it like on a stage or something, you know, that I don't think of myself as a food writer. I think of myself as a chef writer. Yeah, yeah. But I'm totally serious when I say that, and I thought when I started saying that that other people would start saying Hmm. it also. Nobody does, but, I mean, that's just me. I'm fine with that. It's kind of a niche. I I don't – was I ahead of my time? I mean – I remember vividly the day I read Kitchen Confidential and yeah. saw my future, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, you know. Many of us did, and it's saw, such a good point. I saw Lane, you Many know, of us did. I Many. saw Lane. Uh, but you know, even be- well before I was even yeah. in this world, you know, the, the, the writings that someone like Ruth Reichl did back Course. in the seventies and eighties, the long form profiles, yeah. that to me is where this all starts. And even in a way like Gail Green and how her, her a lot of her restaurant reviews were kind of half profiles and half Gail, reviews. And
0: uh, uh, R.W. Apple as well. The yeah. Times. People like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's true. There is a, there is a legacy, but I, I think still it's, it's, it's definitely ahead of its time. I want to talk about uh, your book, uh, Chef's Drug and Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, um, which Transports readers back to the American restaurant world of the 1970s and 80s. And I, I gotta ask you about this book. Um, you know, you published it, you know, with this very interesting timing. You know, the Me Too movement had just started. I know you you look at me like, wow, it must have been you, like you kind of like you had a response when I said the timing because it must have been tough because it was like right when the Me Too movement was taking off and Batali um, the long long pieces about Battalion, many of the abuses in the kitchen that we've that we've covered for years. It's so right at that time. I guess my question is um, about that book. Would you have done anything differently now that you've gotten a couple years space between that book and, and now?
1: Well, first of all, the only reason I made the face is the only person actually, the timing was not a problem at all, as it turned out, except for uh, a review by a certain restaurant critic that ran in the New York Times book review that, Decided to take a crowbar to the title, which still aggravates me. To be honest,
0: I'm sorry. I, I didn't even know. No, about no, no. That. That's okay. That's but that's tough. that's
1: the only reason. I, it just bugged me at the time. No, the title tough. was set before the Me Too movement. Of course, uh, years. before. You're in publishing. You yeah. know this. Like the glacial. Title, it's glacial. It was set. Yeah. It was the cover was done. Yeah. You know the Mario story happened in December of eighteen of uh, seventeen. Yeah. My book came out in in February of. Eighteen, right? Mm-hmm. It was like two months later. You, book titles don't change like that. Yeah. Um, also, frankly, it's a great title. Um, it's a Definitely. title that really speaks to that era. It's very. I remember Jeremiah Tower said to me. I said, "You think I'm going to have any heat with this title <laughs> early on? Early on?" Mm-hmm. And he goes, "I think it's perfect." Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, Good, Tower I mean, that's kind of a loaded person to ask, but um, uh, but you know, everybody I told it to. Love that title. Uh, In terms of what I would do different, I'm assuming you're referring to sort of all the revelations that have happened, and we can all, you know, things change fast, right? So I did ask uh, almost every woman I interviewed probably, certainly the vast majority of them for that book, are there any issues moments, things that arose mm-hmm. out of being a woman at that time in kitchens or in this industry. And I got the usual stories of, you know, it was hard to get into the, I was hard to get a job. Uh, uh, you know, uh, they would only let me work garde manger or pastry. Um, nobody, there were one or two very, how do I put this? Relatively tame, story, people brushing up against you too close in the walk-in. Nothing that was like the horrifying stuff that we're hearing now, mm-hmm. right? People, Women were not, as a rule, sharing those stories or volunteering yeah. those stories. And then the dam broke, right? And then it was different. But while I was writing the book, if I'm honest, I didn't know the extent of what went on. Um, I hasten to add, by the way, Matt, it's not universal. Mm-hmm. This is this something that really troubles me right now mm-hmm. is, you know, like I was I was doing a Zoom call with some friends during COVID and one of them was visiting their parents and they were like, oh, mom and dad, come say hi to my friends. And, you know, these two older people mm-hmm. down in Florida, like, oh, <laughs> hello, what do you do? What do you do? And I said, I write about chefs, you know, and the mom goes, Oh, I hear those are dangerous characters. And that really, that really, it's not universal. First of all, it completely discounts women chefs. (laughs) Like, right? I mean, if we're going to paint with a broad brush, like, are we saying all chefs are like this? And if you are, you probably don't mean women if you are someone who believes that. And very few women are like that, right? So, uh, you know, there's some great, I've met so many great people in the industry and, and it, I'm not, I'm all this stuff obviously is real. I'm not debating it and it's rampant, but it's not universal.
0: Yeah. Good point. I think, um, yeah, the, the emoji of the, the, the screaming white male chef, um, is certainly one side of this story. Right. And I think obviously you've explained the reporting of the book. Uh, the book is worth checking out just for some amazing history of American food. I think it's oh, definitely linked to it in the show notes, um, so I think you, you've made a great point about a little bit of behind the scenes about the reporting of that book and, and kind of the timing, which was interesting. I have to ask you, though, um, are there is there a chef now that you wish that you covered from that era who maybe hasn't been given the treatment that you offered many chefs in that book?
1: Um, I mean, I'm – there's <laughs> – it's not a it's not a new revelation to me. One of the things I wrestled with with that book, you know, I did like two hundred and twenty yeah. interviews, give or take a couple. And uh, initially, I had this uh, thought without a roadmap of I'm going to cover everything, you know, yeah. and but I really didn't want to write like a survey. I wanted to write something that was a narrative. And at some point, I decided I was going to focus mainly on New York, the Bay Area of California, and the Los Angeles area. And a lot of people, some of whom I had interviewed, you know, like Patrick O'Connell is like mentioned and quoted mm-hmm. in my book once, but Patrick's a super important person. I don't have the whole Patrick O'Connell story. Yeah. There's a number of very important people, including a number of very important women chefs. You know, everyone talks about the Bay Area as this kind of safe haven for women chef. Boston, curiously, mm-hmm. back in the day, had a you know, disproportionate to other cities number of very successful Mm -hmm. women, Lydia Shire and Jodie Adams, and Mm -hmm. you know, it's quite a list. I made the very painful decision that I was gonna go in more for narrative uh, storytelling than I was, for being a completist or, I actually sent a mass email. My publisher was nice enough to let me send a signed copy to everyone who gave me an interview. And when I sent the email around asking for people's mailing address, I said, I just wanna tell all of you that uh, for reasons that'll be apparent when you see the book, I did not use all the interviews. I didn't quote all of you. I appreciate your time. I'll try to find other ways to use our interviews in articles and things like that. and just so I'm clear, I'm not blaming my editor. This was my yep. personal decision. And I got to say, I think it was the right, you know, I did get even some rave reviews I got, like the Wall Street Journal mentioned that there were, you know, too many exhaustive lists of names, right?
0: But that I mean, was you're the, never going to win. <laughs> no, that's
1: fine. I don't, uh, th- that was, I think that's a fair criticism, but yeah. that would, that was my kind of lingering guilt of, yeah. you know, not, I was trying to name, at least name check as many people as I could. Because going back to the beginning of this conversation we're having, a lot of them people haven't heard of today.
0: Yeah, I mean it's important to uh, to make those lists because I think you know especially as a younger generation starts to look back at history and and you know acknowledge the history of restaurants in America, some of these bit players will be recognized truly through your book and only your book. So because it's pre-internet and there's no cash. Thank you. Um, I mean Bruce
1: Martyr, who's the chef in the first page of the book, who's been wildly successful. Yeah. In L.A. for years, not the most popular. He and I have become very friendly, but he's not that popular. He's, he's I think, once had a PR firm for five minutes. He's never been nominated for an award. Yeah. But if you talk to, like, the Ruth Reichels and the Coleman Andrews of the world who were there, they think he's one of the people who created what we now refer to as California cuisine. Yeah. Most people never heard of that guy.
0: Let's switch gears. Um, I want to talk about the restaurant industry a little bit. I want to talk about what's happening right now post-COVID because I feel like um, – we are at an interesting moment, um, and you are an, a keen observer through Andrew Talks to Chefs, your podcast, where you interview chefs exclusively and some writers about the industry. But like, let's let's do that zoom out about what's happening post COVID in terms of the restaurant industry. I know, just at another level, is like obviously inflation and food costs and gas costs. Is, I mean, David Chang just wanted his podcast this morning I was listening to, it, and he was talking about don't get mad at restaurants for thirty percent, forty percent price increases. So that's another thing that we have to worry about. But what's happening right now that you're seeing broad strokes in the restaurant industry?
1: I mean, are we talking like along the lines of what David said in his pod? Or are we talking like uh, culturally in the kitchen?
0: I mean, I think let's first talk about the cultural – I think that's kind of like the culture of chefs and the way restaurants are being set up these days. And then we could talk a little bit about pricing. But yeah.
1: I mean, I think it goes back to – I mean – the, the the Me Too I I don't I don't I, I don't love the the phrase Me Too. It's okay. like referring to I'm not nothing about I'm, most people use it, but it's like when people refer to the September 11 terrorist attacks yeah. as just 911. There's something that softens it to me yeah. when these revelations of harassment and assault, yeah, right,
0: be, yeah, right,
1: which is what we're talking about. <laughs> right. um, uh, when these started to come to the fore, I mean that was only a little more than a year before COVID hit. Amazingly, right. And I think a lot of the cultural changes that we're seeing in restaurants date back to that more than COVID. I do think it's become uh, harder to be, uh, let's just say a, a chef or a restaurateur who engages in inappropriate language and behavior, right? That's probably the most broad way to put it. I think that's harder now. I think there is a healthy fear Amongst people with that kind of an inclination, that they're going to be outed, that there are journalists who don't just have their ears open to these stories, but are actively—I mean, you've seen this, Matt. I almost feel like some of the stories, to me, honestly, I feel like they're making too much of some of these cases Mm -hmm. because it's now kind of like a rite of passage for a food journalist to to just you know to take someone down to expose somebody, Mm -hmm. right? And a lot of times it's warranted, but I think some of these stories have been. Overblown. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just people – you know, there was – I've said this. Tom Colicchio was on my show recently and this came up. You know, there was a piece recently about Jordan Kahn. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Eater
0: LA, yeah. Eater
1: LA. And I like the Eater LA team. But to me, that piece – I don't know. Did it, did that deserve eighteen months of a journalist life as they said mm-hmm. they spent, and and did that, did that deserve that kind of piece, or the piece about Chris Costow at the restaurant at Meadowood that was written like immediately after his restaurant burned to the ground? Mm-hmm. You know um, that he has a temper. Huh? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Does that does, does that
0: I, some of that stuff I think is. There's the history chicken gate up in Seattle at the. At you know, oh, I haven't restaurant. seen that. You know the what's, this? what's his name? Uh, Lumi Island.
1: Oh, that. Yeah, yeah there sorry. was that piece. I mean that.
0: Yeah, there's some.
1: That's more of a gray area for me. Maybe even not even a gray area. Maybe yes, that that article should have been written. I don't know. I but obviously some of the really awful. I don't want to. I don't need to kick people more right now. You know the Mario story. Obviously the John Best story. Obviously. Um, the Eduardo Jordan story to me, obviously, I mean, just really unacceptable, you know, behavior. And, um, so in terms of how things have changed, I, I do think that it's good that people feel, you know, the whole world is watching as to say on, on the protest. I'm going to push
0: back just a little bit on the, on the intent of the writer. I, I think, it is a rite of passage to do a big piece as, a, as an investigative journalist. I think resourcing is always going to be an issue with food media. And so certain outlets um, are having to punch well above their weight with some of these pieces and don't have the resources but still want to tell the story. I believe that the intent is always pure and honest. I, I don't think that there's axes grinding right now personally. That's just my take on it. I, I don't know. I think it is a real judgment column, and, our, and I think our listeners will decide if um, allegations are merited or not or if 3,000 words is merited or not. But
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess – all right. Fair enough. I'll, I'll rephrase it as no. – No, but I think maybe there's a certain notion that um, we're looking for perfection. In behavior, you know, and yeah. and I think that's unattainable. And I think a lot of these stories, not all of them, but a lot of the ones that to me are going, a l- making a little too much about something, uh, yeah. are written by I think people who are on the younger and therefore just by nature more idealistic side. Yeah. And I think life's more complicated than that.
0: Agree, Andrew. I think that's, that's all. I that,
1: – Is that a better way to put
0: it? No, I, I think both ways are fine. And I, I and I this trust me, this is not the first time someone has brought up the fact that some stories maybe shouldn't be written. I mean, it's something we talk about a lot as you know, writers and journalists. And I'm glad you're saying it because I think it's important that we acknowledge that. Yeah, the the perfection is uh, is kind of demanded right now.
1: <laughs> well, you know, for people who. Uh, Listen. There, there are restaurant environments that are tough. There are plenty of cooks out there still to this day. You asked me how the industry's changed. There's a lot of people who are looking for balance, you know, self care, uh, taking care of their mental health. Right. These are all great evolutions that have taken place, not just in the industry but in society. Right. But there's also still plenty of young cooks who want to go to a restaurant like Eleven Madison Park and have their ass kicked on a daily basis, mm-hmm. right? I mean, meta- not literally, yeah. but verbally or through the just sheer amount of work and expectation, right? There are people who want to play on that field, and I think that's fine. And if, and if that world isn't for you, there's, you know, I've, I've, I said this recently in the conversation I had with Tom, you know, there's such a shortage of employees in this industry Nobody has to work in those restaurants. Yeah. There's 50 other restaurants in your town who will hire you tomorrow. Don't go work for the guy or the woman who is um, chasing perfection on the plate, who's Mm. charging $800 per dinner and and expecting the team to deliver that value of a meal, right? Like that's going to come with pressure.
0: Yeah, Almost I mean, always. the Brigade system is is set up like a military operation. Of course, and clearly, it is. And, and there is a certain tone of, of a military operation.
1: And there are people who like that. Yeah. I mean, employees. There are employees who live for that. It's not for everybody.
0: Well, you spend a lot of time in kitchens, and I, and I respect your take, and I, I think you have more experience than, than most. You know, A lot of writers and editors are, are stuck behind their desk, and they're not out there in the kitchen with notebook in hand, and I know you're doing that. And I want to hear a little bit about the book you're working on with some Chicago chefs, um, but I really want to continue talking about your podcast because I, I think— uh, what you're doing and you talked about mental health you you just mentioned it you do you you bring that topic up time and again which is great as a reminder that we need to be mindful of mental health in in the industry but but really what is the purpose of Andrew's Talk to Chefs Andrew talks to chefs um who are you serving um is it like for hardcore restaurant fans is it for the industry it's like get your take about the show I mean I don't know I am I the,
1: I'm, maybe I'm the last person to ask I mean I when I started the show in all honesty, I was doing another podcast with my friend Jimmy Bradley, who used to have the Red Cat and other yeah. restaurants in New York. And we had a, a show called The Front Burner, which was a current event show. And uh, as we were getting ready to do that show, I was listening to a lot of podcasts and thinking about what made them good and how to be on air and all this stuff that I wasn't, I don't think, naturally good at. I've worked really hard to get better mm. the last four years. Um, and I started listening to Mark Maron's WTF podcast. Yeah. And... Even from the time Jimmy and I started our show, I was like, I want to do like Mark Marin with chefs. Mm-hmm. I want to sit down. And when Marin started that show, it's long, it hasn't been like this in years. All, all it was ever was him talking to fellow comics, comics. And they were talking about the craft and the life and how'd you get into it and all that. Now, I'm not a chef. I've I've been a busboy in my life. Mm-hmm. I've never worked in a kitchen. But I've spent so much time in them. I, I really felt – like other than someone who actually was a chef that I could speak to them on their terms about their life as well as anybody, right? And that was the initial goal of the show was to build a catalog of conversa- very revealing personal mm-hmm. conversations that went wherever they went. Some of them get very – uh, mentor focused. Some of them get very mental health focused. Some of them get very signature dishy focused. Yeah. Some of them go all over the place, you know? And um, my personal goal is to, and I'm funny because I've heard Mark Marin say this, not that I'm comparing myself to Mark. He's got one of the biggest podcasts in mm-hmm. the world. But, you know, he has said he's looking to have a, a genuine connection on air, right? And that's what I'm always after. you know a lot of people who've been on the show, I've become friends with them through the show. yeah, I found Beverly Kim, who along with her husband Johnny Clark and their team are the subject of my next book, interviewing her while I was looking for the subject of the book. I had a concept and I was in the middle of my search. she was not on my list. I'd never met her. and at the we spent an hour and a half talking and when I turned off the mic, I said, you know, this is going to come out of left field, but do you think you and your team would like to be at the middle of my next book, you know? And here I am a year later wrapping up the book. Um, But what I've found uh, from the, I hear from, I'm sure you must also, I hear from a lot of listeners. um, And I think the show is for two populations. I think the show is definitely for anyone who works in or would like to work in or is contemplating working in a professional kitchen. I hear from tons of culinary students, line cooks, sous chefs, but also chefs. Yeah. I just got a lovely note the other day asking to be on my show from a chef who I had on my list to have on my show next time I went to their city. Exciting. It yeah. was really nice. Cool. Um, so I, I hear that from people, but then I also uh, – I think anyone who just likes to hear people talk about how they do what they do, talk about their craft or maybe be on fly on the wall for often very revealing I hope, honest conversations, I yeah. think, get, like it. I do also hear from people, and I've had some reviews where people are like, I don't really care about food, but I just like these conversations. Yeah, I,
0: I agree, and I'll I'll just say my bit. I think that your show um, is varied in its approach, like Marin's. I think you definitely, um, t- you take the temperature in the room, and you kind of go there wherever wherever it may go, I guess. And I, I like that uh, you do address the to- the tougher topics with some of your guests that – Maybe are a bit taboo to cover in, in more of the mainstream podcasting world for food, which tends to get become more about the book project or answering questions about cooking. Um, so I just want to say to listeners, if you've gotten this far in, in the in our interview, you, you you've clearly engaged with Andrew and give the show a listen because it's great. Um, Thank but, you, Matt. Can I just
1: say quickly, you've been so supportive over the last oh, couple of years. You uh, no no publicly no. on Instagram <laughs> and like you send me notes once in a while yeah. and.
0: I love the show, and I think it's super important. I think it's important, that the work you're doing, and I know it's a lot of work. uh, Thank you. Believe me. But let's talk about your your, your book project, because I want to get into this idea that you uh, are tapping into spending time in Chicago with Beverly Kim and Johnny Clark. Clark um uh, the the two, the duo behind, behind parachute, among other restaurants. so what what can you say about your book project because it's 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 cool. It's exciting. Well, I
1: asked you off air. Do we think i'm in the <laughs> I'm in the safety zone now that the book is written <laughs> and scheduled? Like do you think I can talk about it?
0: Probably? I think you should talk I think about I it. I can talk about it, publicly. I think you should talk about it briefly. Uh, the book
1: is called the Dish. Cool. And uh, the concept is one I had before Covid that became much more timely with some of the conversations that started happening during COVID and I sat on the idea mm-hmm. and I actually sold it in a phone call uh, that I had with a, an editor around a different thing that I had been up for. Um, and uh, this is the idea. I'm, I'm The shortest way to put it is I'm writing about all of the people who come together on one plate of food. In the restaurant, it's everybody from the dishwasher to the prep cook, to the line cook, to the sous chef. To the chef de cuisine, to the chef owners, Beverly and Johnny. Uh, the book actually, because Parachute, they decided to do renovations during COVID, mm-hmm. uh, the book is actually set at Wherewithal, which is their sister restaurant. It's just a block and a half away. And if any of you are in Chicago or visiting Chicago, <laughs> Wherewithal is wonderful. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was very, you asked uh, when, before we did the interview, you said you'd maybe like to talk about how, you know, being embedded and how that works and stuff. You know, I've learned over the, you know, I've I, both of my last books, there were things that were awkward for me. Pe- you know, um, Chef Drugs and Rock and Roll, uh, there are people who I definitely had enough people telling me they did a ton of Coke. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't tell me. It mm-hmm. would have passed a legal read. I mm-hmm. could have gotten it into the book. I don't want to be that guy. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, I, I can't. I'm not that person. I don't think it's important enough. People have grandchildren, you know, uh, there were some things I saw when I wrote about The Boku's Door that I knew would be uncomfortable for those mm-hmm. guys. And and I I feel a little compromised in some way by not having included those things. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to pick a subject. And this is true of the, my podcast. I don't book mm-hmm. people who I know just from word of mouth
0: mm-hmm.
1: to be jerks. I don't book people who – you know how it is, Matt. Like we hear sometimes these, these quote-unquote Me Too stories – are coming down the pike before they come out. You know Mm -hmm. people are working on these things. If I've heard enough chatter about somebody, I just don't book them. I don't wanna, it's not what my show is. It's not a current event show per se, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So with this book, I really wanted to pick a subject that among other things, I wasn't gonna feel stuck in the gears like that. I didn't want to have to make that moral decision as, a uh, you know, that journalistically moral decision. And I have to say, it's a, it's an, the team at that restaurant is just amazing. I'm not going to say there aren't moments, um, but they're very, I mean, relative to any other, not just kitchen work environment. So you're writing
0: short vignettes or longer vignettes about certain members of the team and getting to know their story. The book
1: takes place during a service.
0: Right on, right on. And, cool.
1: And, uh, As this dish is being readied, uh, you meet uh, either members of the kitchen team and – but also – so I made two big research trips. One was I spent a week at the restaurant Mm -hmm. observing like from 10 a.m. till midnight Mm -hmm. and interviewing people. And then I came back two weeks later, rented a car, and I went to all the farms and ranches and things from where all the ingredients on that plate come from. So, I mean, everybody from – you know, uh, field workers to the farmers to, uh, I spent a day with a delivery guy.
0: Yeah. I right. met him
1: at three in the morning and went out on a delivery Ooh. run. Yep. Um, uh, you know, I grew up in Miami, so I speak, uh, I used to speak almost fluently, but I speak some Spanish. I got actually very friendly with the, di- the main dishwasher wherewithal cause she was so happy to speak Spanish with me. Everyone probably has a silver lining about the pandemic, you know, as awful as yeah. it was. One of my things is I've always struggled with solitude and uh, I probably shouldn't be a writer just <laughs> metabolically. <laughs>
0: yeah, I
1: but um, I got very disciplined and i've I've forced myself to wrestle with the tough sentences and paragraphs and not settle. For what I used to settle for just because I couldn't take it anymore.
0: Yeah, no, it's. It, so I'm tendency. really pushing myself. I appreciate right now. that. Well, I can't wait to read it. And, and I want to also ask you about Danny Ballou. You're writing a book about his uh, his life in New York. Uh,
1: well, that. So the one we just talked about, which is called The Dish, is my, it's my book, right? Yeah, the, yeah. the Wherewithal Team and The yeah. Farm, they're the subjects of the book that gave me access, but that yeah. is The Dish by Andrew Friedman. Yeah, yeah. Um, The Danielle book, uh, currently untitled, uh, is Danielle's book and I'm his collaborator. It's another collaboration for me. So it'll be written in voice. Uh, Grand Central is going to publish it. Um, We have a year. We still have a year uh, uh, to write it. So we're sort of still relatively in the early stages. Um, But I've been joking with Danielle for years that, you know, Thomas Keller does all his books with Michael Ruhlman, right, Mm -hmm. and a a team. Danielle's used various writers over the years and he and I are very friendly but he's never used me and for 10 years I've been like damn like (laughs) what am I
0: you know yeah well let's come on let's do the book yeah so he
1: texted me November of 20 yeah during the pandemic when I was like you know nothing doing and one night I got this text saying I'm thinking about doing a book about my 40 years in New York what do you think and I was like I think I was at the restroom for a meeting like thirty six hours later. Yeah, what yeah.
0: a what a that will be an interesting read. I'm sure he's got some stories. We'll he, just say,
1: he, yeah, he's also yeah. I mean, he you know front row seat for yeah. the whole.
0: Well, you're in the skybox, right?
1: Uh, well, this was half <laughs> the book. No, we wrote. You know, we did this proposal. Pre, we did the proposal pre vaccine. Okay, okay, so it was like six feet apart, like at yeah. a table in the empty Danielle dining
0: room. Yeah, my gosh. Yeah. We ask all guests in the Taste podcast, if there was a book project that you could write without the burden of deadline or budget, Andrew, I know you have your dream book project, what would it be? I would probably write a book about dishwashers. Cool. Let's go.
1: I think that is a fascinating job in kitchens. It's the most common entry point in kitchens. But it's also, you know, there's a lot of people who have they're what I call lifers. that That's just their job. And they come in. They probably have never eaten in a restaurant like the one that they are servicing. And any chef or cook will tell you if the dish pit goes down, you know, when you're sitting in a restaurant dining room – the dishes don't pile up till the end of the night. Dishes are recirculated. Yeah. You know, someone who was on the way out when you came in, you're probably eating off their plate. Oh,
0: like a 250 cover spot. Yeah. Like, especially they don't have that space. No, they're that.
1: constantly recycling yeah. the dishes. And, yeah. and if that dish pit goes down, th- everything goes down. Right. And it's just such a fascinating, underappreciated job that I've always loved talking to chefs about. And, I'll tell you, when I was working on the dish, there were certain people who, for reasons I don't want to get into, before I came across Beverly and Johnny, you know, they were like, "But you can't write about our dishwasher." <laughs> and and I'm wow. like, and I was like, "That's a deal breaker."
0: My goodness, that that like the reason you wouldn't want to write about a dishwasher, I I, I can't imagine. Well, it
1: had to do with immigration
0: stuff. Yeah, I would. Yeah,
1: but but, Imm- but which I can understand. I didn't want to be responsible for somebody getting like not.
0: deported. But for a work of journalism, you have to. Well, you could change names, I guess. But.
1: but I wasn't willing to write this book without a dishwasher in it. Yeah, you know, like to me, again, this, these all these articles started happening during the pandemic. Like people, like we all see all these Instagram posts, right? Like this is our employee of the week. Yeah, like there's a new appreciation for the the rank and file members of the kitchen team. But I've had that appreciation. F- I've spent so much time around these people. I've seen them. You know, they work really hard. So it's been a it's been a very gratifying project and I, like I say I'm just about to turn it in and I'm th- I can't wait for people to see I
0: it. can't wait to write about it on Taste Andrew Friedman thank you for joining the Taste podcast
1: thank you for having me Matt
0: Hey, Bianca Cruz, welcome back to the Taste Podcast.
2: Hi, Matt. I'm happy to be back.
0: I love it. So as a reminder, Bianca is an editorial assistant at Clarkson Potter, but also in culinary school.
2: Yeah, that's it's a lot of work, but I love it.
0: You know, we uh, we definitely, we talked on, uh, we, we hit on some topics previously about like what brought you to culinary school. And I wanted to have you back to talk about the pastry section. So you went right in uh, to the pastry section after we last spoke. What's that been like?
2: Um, it's just been so different from culinary, obviously, and I remember on one of the first days, the pastry chef we had was like, culinary people are weenies, and (laughs) she couldn't have been more right. Uh, we're very spoiled, and, um, like, she, uh, people in pastry can just grab things out of the oven with, like, their bare hands. They're so talented, and they just have a different vision for, for food, Um, But as for me, I mean, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Like I got to make ice cream like two nights ago and that was amazing. I I got to eat it right out of the machine. It was awesome. Um, And I just got to learn a lot more about the science of of baking Mm -hmm. and things that I just didn't know before. I mean, when I was a novice baker, I would use something like cake. He said, oh, use cake flour. And I'm like, "Eh, I'm going to use all purpose, but the product doesn't come out the same. And you learn how to really refine your palate when it comes to desserts and sweets, um, but also with savory items because baking is also savory. Absolutely.
0: So. Do you feel like you've um, picked up some 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 tips, some some skills, you know, that will set you aside now forever uh, from like a novice baker? When you're in culinary school, you're are you using special equipment, or is it more the technique that you're learning that you can actually apply to the real home kitchen?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of it is. I mean, the tools are, are basic kitchen tools that you should have, like a whisk, um, a bench scraper if you really love to bake. Um, but the big thing here is when you make a recipe, just out of curiosity, I would just go and look up, you know, why that technique or why that ingredient? Like I just said earlier, why cake flour? Why can't I use regular flour? And you Google that and you'll find an answer to pretty much everything. You're like, huh, it's telling me to use this type of chocolate. Why? Like, why is it – it's hard to find this type of chocolate. Why is it asking for that? Um, you know, what's the difference between between Dutch processed cocoa and the regular cocoa you find at the supermarket? Mm-hmm. So there's just so many different things and elements that I feel like some um, some cookbooks at least don't really go into because, you know, not, not many people are interested. But if you really want to advance your skills, those are the types of things yeah. that you should know. Or even something as simple as, like, what temperature does yeast thrive and die at? Um, because some people are just like, oh, I'm just going to add water to it, but either the water's, you know, too cold or too hot. So these are really finicky items and there's a lot of things that are literally alive within the pastry realm. You're using yeast, you're using all these different types of fermentation within the process, um that make really amazing desserts, but you just kind of don't think about it.
0: You don't. And, and are you getting into bread baking and like the the d- like the like development of flavor through fermentation? Is that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. definitely.
2: We, we only got to really touch a little bit on breads. It yeah. wasn't a, a, a huge thing. I would have loved to make a great sourdough, but that takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've made sourdough in my own kitchen and it's a really fun process seeing your starter come to life in front of your very eyes, and it's really cool. All
0: right. So let's talk about some of the uh, the more difficult tasks, because I know, I mean, pastry to me, I'm not a huge baker. I'm using my digital skill, obviously, but I'm still not getting that, like, bakery level or restaurant level pastry. So let's get into some of the more difficult tasks.
2: Yeah. I think one of the hardest things for me is that, I think I've touched on this earlier, but pastry's so finicky. Um, I remember speaking a creme anglaise, which is a uh, type of custard you use for ice cream. Mm-hmm. And I think the uh, when it's done is around what, between 160 and 180 degrees Fahrenheit, it completely curdled on me. It turned into scrambled eggs. And I was so tragic because I was so confident I was going to make it really great. And the chef was like, it happens. She just looked at me like, sorry. Um, so you just start over? I just start over, and you yeah. just got to do it over and over again. Um, and even with, like, we made Danish dough, which is very similar to croissant dough, and even with that, it was so hard on the body to laminate and to roll it out, and you have to essentially put butter. It's like all these different levels of, uh, or rather layers of butter and flour, and it was so it was so crazy. It took, like, I think two to three days to, to complete that task, and it came out really delicious, but it was still really difficult, and... um like I said, it's very it, just something as simple as like if you leave out the dough, the croissant dough for too long, melts, isn't melts. isn't usable isn't usable anymore. Even something like phyllo dough where you have to make sure you keep it covered while you use it. Or it'll dry out and you can't use it anymore. So there's a lot about uh, strategy and ensuring that you're paying attention and doing everything the chef tells you to.
0: Must be uh, so many moving parts with, with baking and pastry. Uh, are you using a sheeter when you're doing uh, croissants? Do you we have a,
2: did not. So you have no
0: sheeter, which no. is like a lot of restaurants don't have sheeters either. No,
2: I, I think, you know, obviously if you're pumping out so much yeah. every day. But, you know, we actually asked uh, – that was a question somebody asked, like, Chef, what do they do beforehand? Like, what are they doing in the before times? And he was like, "What we're doing right now, we're doing it by hand." Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it makes you appreciate it that much more when you go to a, a bakery and they're making all their stuff by hand because it t- it's just so much work, but it produces a really delicious product. And I think it, I think it's a little bit uh, more advanced, or I think it actually tastes better than the ones that are produced in a machine.
0: Hundred percent agree. I want to find out about your exam. We're recording this in mid June, and tonight you're going to leave work. We're at work. This is your second job. And you're going to take a pastry exam. So what, how are you feeling?
2: Uh, I'm a little bit nervous because I've only made, so actually tonight we take a a written exam, which I've studied for. I always create a study sheet um, that actually the entire class ends up using. <laughs> oh,
0: you're the one that everyone copies? I'm the one. Yeah. I'm the one.
2: Uh, that's nice. just the way that I go about it, and I was like, I might as well share it with everybody. Yeah, sure. Um, but then we also have to do the practical ex- examination, which is creating a fruit tart. And it's not it's not super hard, but once again, it is finicky. So you have to create, um, I think the dough we're using is called a pot sucre, And so we do that. We put it in the tart pan and then we have to also make pastry cream, which Mm. once again could also be a little bit finicky. Um, We fill it up and then we put some beautiful cut fruit on there and then glaze it. So that's that's the gist of it. But. Within that process, there could be so much that goes wrong, including your tart shell breaks. Um, It doesn't, you know, puff up correctly or it it puffs up too much or, you know, um, your pastry cream completely curdles. There's just so much that can go wrong. So I'm a little bit nervous. I just have to take it step by step. We have like four hours to do it. But... um, I'm hoping that the next time we talk, I can say everything was successful. So we
0: will. So I wish you luck, Bianca. And I think that we can uh, have you back soon. What's the next unit? What's after pastry? Do you have a, is it, you're pretty close to graduation, right?
2: I am. The next uh, unit is module five, which isn't like a concrete uh, type of thing. There's a lot that goes on with it, including things like charcuterie, um, hors d'oeuvres. And it's really about refining all of the skills that you learned previously into this environment and, and making sure that you're essentially a chef now prove Hmm. it. So I, I feel like that's what module five is, is really about. And You're going to be using a lot of upscale ingredients like foie gras, um, uh, caviar, things like that, Mm -hmm. things that are like relatively expensive that they wouldn't give to a baby chef and be like, oh.
0: I love it. You graduated to caviar. Yes. Um, And then when do you find out your externship? Are you doing an externship?
2: I have to do an externship and I really hope that I can either do it. I, I prefer to do pastry, not because, I mean, I, I do love it, but I do have a shellfish allergy. Yeah. Um, and that made it a little bit difficult because a lot of these high end restaurants always serve shellfish, and I have nothing against that, but it's a little difficult for me to yeah. make. Uh, so I, I kind of wanted to just do pastry on the safer side, but also because we got a, our shortest unit was pastry. So it would be really nice to to expand that knowledge and skills there. Exactly. So um, I'm really hoping I can either do it at Gage and Tolner with Caroline Schiff, Chef Caroline Schiff, who's. I love her everything that she does, or I'm dying to do it at Don Angie uh, and do their desserts because their tiramisu has changed my life. <laughs> so it would be really nice to learn exactly how they make it because I would like to make it at home. Sorry, yeah. Sorry Scott and Angie. <laughs> no, I mean, well,
0: once they once you work for basically free, uh, you deserve the recipe. Yeah, so.
2: but the good thing I think now is that the, the culture around paying externs is actually pretty oh, good. Great. So great. I, for the most part, I know that most externships are paid. Um, you're just not getting paid as much as the people who actually work there, like, mm-hmm. full-time. So I'm just hoping I can get over it really fast because <laughs> it's, it's really scary. I've, I've never, like, uh, worked in a professional kitchen setting, so I I don't know what I'm in for. We'll,
0: well, What we'll do is we'll have you back. We'll talk about the end of your culinary school journey, and then we'll definitely follow your externship because I like to— out more about what it's like to be have an externship. Yeah, um, I want to shift focus. You are also an editor, a rising editor here at, at Clarks and Potter, and you just released a book that you worked on um, called As Cooked on TikTok. So I wanted to get a sense of this book. It's very cool, It's it's kind of a collaboration between you and a bunch of TikTok creators. Tell me a little bit about how the book came about.
2: Yeah, uh, strangely enough, TikTok approached us. Yeah, Um Smart. They were like, we love some of the books you've done, including Chrissy Teigen's books and the Tasty books. And they just kind of wanted to emulate that. And it was such an exciting thing because we we had exclusive access to this this whole brand, this like monolith of a of a social media brand. And we worked with some of the best on their team. Um, shout out to Will Granberry, who is a star to work with. And we kind of just brainstormed off of each other. We're just like, what should what should this book be? And we evidently decided it, we thought it would be best to actually just take the creators that made these super cool, trendy recipes and put them in a book, give them credit for everything that they've done. And it just came together. I couldn't really tell you how it happened. It was kind of a whirlwind because we did it in like less than a year and a half. Yeah. So Which is very
0: fast for a cookbook. Yeah, it's yeah. so
2: fast. I mean, in publishing in general, we like to give about 2 years. So, 1 mm-hmm. year for like the manuscript and the development and then like 1 year for the actual production of the book. Um so when that actually came together, like so many of these TikTokers are just so excited to post about it and they're like this is my book debut and you know that was the entire intention is to really help them uplift their careers yeah. and to really get them in this uh this publishing space so we're hoping to see some more really great stuff with these creators
0: i can't wait so give me a couple creators you really liked working with from the book
2: uh some of well some that didn't make it in the book that we were supposed to um who we actually do have a book with john Kung, yeah. who i'm in love with he is such a gem he's the sweetest and i think he was on the Taste Podcast. He's good.
0: Yeah, he's definitely uh, going to be on either this episode or a, a very, you know, it's very soon. Or yeah, very, he just was published. Yeah, yeah he's so Great fun yeah. to
2: work with. Um, he's such a sweetie, and I was hoping he was going to make it in the book, but the publishing schedule didn't allow that. Yeah. But the ones that did make it in, the one I love, love, love the most was cooking with Linja, who is hysterical. Um, mm-hmm. She is so fun. I think she she's kind of one of those people that just like resonates with every generation. Everyone just finds her so funny and wholesome, uh, and I think one of the recipes she put in the book was um, Robin ramen, ramen Carbonara, mm. um, and it looks delicious. I haven't had time to make it, but I, I love Carbonara. I love Ramen. I was like, it I, sounds can, I can't a see. Yeah,
0: great match. It, it
2: sounds so good. And then the second one, I guess, would be um, H Wu Lee, who is also. So funny! I he just posted a video about the the cookbook, and I was watching it. and I was like, "This is hysterical!" He like struggles to pronounce the word birria, um, <laughs> and you know, you have to his, if you're Hispanic, you can pretty much pronounce it. But if you've never spoken Spanish, you know, you know nothing about Spanish. You're gonna have trouble pronouncing it. So he made like a whole joke about it, and I thought it was really funny. So he's just also one of those people that's like, I can see him being a star. So. I
0: love it. Well, I'll link to some of those guys uh, in the in the notes. The book is as cooked on TikTok. Bianca Cruz, awesome to hang with you. I can't wait to have you back soon.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Thanks for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.